following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopenv.com. Well, we are uh, opening God's Word again in the Gospel of Luke. And if you've been with us, we've been in Luke since the beginning of Advent. That was four weeks before Christmas. We're actually going to be in the Gospel of Luke all the way to a couple of weeks after Easter. And next week, we're starting kind of a particular focus in that, where in Luke chapter 9, Jesus tells his disciples, or Luke tells us that Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem, set himself to go toward Jerusalem to accomplish what he came to accomplish on the cross. And we're going to focus in more particularly on that journey toward the cross next week. But this week, we get to celebrate Epiphany, the Lord's coming, by looking at a passage in Luke 2 where, Jesus, uh, where Mary and Joseph come and they bring Jesus to the temple to present Him at the temple, and He's met by two other people, Simeon and Anna. And it's a beautiful passage where we get to learn a lot about what it means to live in the world that we live in. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 2. We're looking Uh, at verses 22 through 38. Listen now as I read to us from God's Word. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought Him, that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the wound shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when, his parents brought, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant go in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Your Word. We are grateful for the lasting nature of Your Word. We're grateful for Your living Word. We ask that you would open our eyes and ears and soften our hearts today as we hear your word that you might change us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
The question really that we have to deal with today is this, is how do you find comfort? And, and by comfort, I'm not asking, you know, what's your favorite blanket or stuffed animal. I'm talking about how do you find comfort in some of the really difficult, challenging places in our lives. I mean, we have people in this church who are dealing with really big physical health challenges. We have people in this church who are dealing with really big and hurtful relational challenges, dynamics. We have people who are dealing with big familial challenges. We have people who are really searching and, and honestly um, struggling with what they're going to do with their life as a vocation, with what their calling is, what their job is. So how do you find comfort in these kind of challenges? How do you find comfort in kind of the mess of life that we always find ourselves in? Well, you know, our culture gives us some options here. One pretty popular option these days is the concept of mindfulness. If you have an iPhone or any Apple product, you're probably familiar with mindfulness because Apple loves to promote mindfulness. And mindfulness is, is an interesting concept. It's actually in some ways a modern repackaging of what was popular in the 60s called transcendental meditation. It is simply pausing to be in the moment. Let me read to you actually a description that I found online of mindfulness. It is the basic human ability to be fully present, aware of where we are and what we're doing, and not overly reactive or overwhelmed by what's going on around us. It's the process of focusing one's awareness on the present moment. It's living in the present. And listen, there's a lot of good about that. There's a lot that can be learned about that, about actually living in the present and focusing our attention on what's going on now. But you know, also, that can be used as a way to escape maybe from the scary thoughts about the future. I relieve myself from my anxiety about the future by just not ever thinking about the future, right? There's another option too, of course, and it's almost just the opposite. And really, depending upon uh, your personality, you're probably going to be drawn to one of these or the other. And the opposite approach that's also very popular in our culture is really focus intently on the future in order that you might change it. And this is really promoted by plenty of books and podcasters and celebrities. It's just do it. If it is to be, it's up to me. I am the captain of my soul, right? It's find out what needs to be done and take a hold of it and get it done. Know what needs to happen in the future and change it so that you might have the future that you want to have. And there's a lot of good about that too. The idea of taking responsibility for yourself is a biblical concept. The idea of actually being responsible for what God has given you is a good and right thing. But just like its opposite brother, it can be abused as well, where we take deep control of things, and especially you will find this in religious circles, right, is that if you would just do the right thing, then everything will be okay. You know, the gospel answer to how we find comfort in our lives, especially how we find comfort amidst the real difficulties of our lives, is something that is different than either of those two, but shares some elements of both. Here's what I think the Bible says about how we find comfort. We find comfort by waiting in faith and by walking by faith. Those two things together, waiting in faith which actually takes um, 
hope, patient hopefulness, and walking by faith, which is actually active engagement. And we get in this passage some great examples of both of those things, some great examples of what it means to wait in faith and some great examples of what it means to walk by faith. We get it from the characters in this passage. I'm going to couple them up. Two of them are married, and they should be couples. Simeon and Anna are not, but we're going to talk about them together, and we're going to start with them first. So when we look at Simeon and Anna, we get a great idea, a great example of what it means to wait in faith. Let me give you a little bit of background on who these people are. They show up here in Luke. They don't really ever show up anywhere else in the Bible. We don't know what happens to them. We don't really know what was going on before this. They don't, uh, we don't get their backstory or their future story. What we do learn is a few things about them. First of all, they're both old. And we get this not only by the way that they're described, but also what they're doing. Anna, Luke tells us, is advanced in years. And depending on how you read the Greek grammar, she's either 84 now or she has, uh, or it's been 84 years since she's been a widow. So she's been a widow for 84 years. Either way, she's fairly advanced in years. And Simeon, likewise, we're not told that he's old, but what he says is that since he has seen the Christ, since he has seen Jesus, now he can depart in peace. Now he can die. The implication is he's been waiting for a good while. So they're old. They're also, Luke tells us, righteous. And we get this not only from what Luke says about them, but from their descriptions. With Simeon, he tells us straight out he was righteous and devout. With Anna, he tells us about her actions. She was at the temple worshiping all the time. Now, we've said this before, but when you see the word righteous in the Bible, sometimes you have to do a little work to know what the author is talking about. Luke is not telling us that Simeon and Anna were perfect. They still needed to repent and confess their sins just like you and I do. They still failed God all of the time just like you and I. What Luke does mean is that they are spiritually mature. They are spiritually sensitive. They are seeking and walking with the Lord. And they've been doing so for quite a while. So not only are they advanced in years and they are righteous and devout, but also we see that they are both prophets. Again, we are told that Anna is a prophet or a prophetess, and we are shown that Simeon is. The Spirit leads him, the Spirit guides him, the Spirit reveals things to him, the Spirit even, it seems, fills his mouth with words that God wants him to say. That's who they are, but what's really important is what they've been doing. And what they've been doing is probably a pretty boring answer. They have been waiting. They have been waiting for Christmas, right? (laughs) And, uh, you know, depending on your perspective, waiting for Christmas can take on um, a different kind of, uh, you know, it can take on a different um, attitude. If you're a child, waiting for Christmas not only takes a long time, right, the whole season you're waiting for Christmas to come, but I mean, I remember as a kid, I mean, the night before Christmas was the worst night of sleep I got all year. I was anticipating, I was waiting, I was so excited, and so that waiting built up and built up in that night before where I couldn't sleep much. Now that I am older and my kids are older, the waiting has changed. No longer do my children come and pounce on my bed at 5 a.m. and say, Dad, it's Christmas, it's Christmas, wake up. Now I get up at 5 a.m. just because I'm old, and I wait for them. This Christmas, I got up, I made coffee, I made coffee again, I made breakfast, I made a fire. 
I tended that fire for three hours. I ironed my pajamas. <laughs> While everyone else slept, I was waiting. Simeon and Anna are waiting for Christmas, but friends, they're actually waiting for a lot more than what I was waiting for. Their waiting goes really deep. Luke tells us that they are waiting for consolation. Another, word, another way you could translate that word is comfort. They're waiting for comfort. And they're waiting for the comfort that is coming not only to God's people, but to the whole world. See, the waiting and the comfort that they are seeking is not just for themselves. I love that, that Luke doesn't tell us that they were waiting to be comforted because they had been up so long, so long that they started ironing things that didn't need to be ironed. He doesn't tell us that they're waiting in order that they might be comforted because they're old and frail. He tells us they're waiting to be comforted for something much bigger, much deeper, for the consolation, the comfort that they're waiting for, for God's people and for the world. Let's look at those two things. What do I mean that they were waiting for comfort for God's people? Well, remember where we are in the story. It has been 400 years now since, uh, since they had been controlled, since Israel had been controlled by some other government, some other country. That started with Babylon, and then it was Persia, and then it was Greece, and now it's Rome, and they have been under someone else's control for 400 or more years and so if you are a Jew and you are waiting for comfort, for consolation, you want something to change physically, even politically, about your environment. That's part of what a lot of Jews were waiting for. But I think Simeon and Anna know that it goes a little deeper than that. In fact, there were whispers all throughout the prophets that something was going to change. You'll find one of those, maybe it's not a whisper, comes pretty loud in Isaiah chapter 40. Let me read that for you. Listen, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 through 8. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places as a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. A voice, cry, a voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, with the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That sound familiar to you? First of all, we get this great proclamation, comfort, the exact thing that Simeon and Anna had been waiting for, comfort, comfort for Israel, for her warfare is ended, the proclamation that something is about to change. And then that next passage, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. That's what Luke will use actually in the next chapter in Luke 3 about John the Baptist. That's John's role, the one who comes out of the wilderness to proclaim, to proclaim that the Messiah is here to prepare the way for the Lord. And the end of that is the verse that we end all, you know, every time when, before the sermon, um, when we read God's Word, we end it with those words, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. God's Word 
His word here and his living word, Jesus, stand forever. And Simeon is holding on to these promises, Anna waiting for them as well, for these promises through Isaiah to be revealed, that God would comfort his people, that he would do something actually about their state, both physically and spiritually, by bringing the Messiah. In fact, around this time in the first century, many of the rabbis started referring to the Messiah as the comforter. He was the one who would comfort his people. But of course, it goes deeper even than just comfort for God's people, certainly deeper than even their political reality they're living in. Because Simeon says that Jesus will be not just a comfort for God's people, but a light of revelation to the Gentiles. That word Gentile simply means all the nations that are not Israel. Everyone who is not a Jew, it's a way of referring to the entirety of the world. And what Simeon says is that the Messiah, Jesus, will come not just to comfort Israel, but to comfort everyone. Because, friends, there's a bigger need, isn't there, than the release from political bondage. There's a bigger need, even, isn't there, than even from the difficult things that we need comfort from in our own lives. Physical pain, relational pain questions about calling, difficult time with family. What we need most, first and foremost, is comfort from the real situation that we're in. It's our own sin that separates us from the Lord. And Jesus has come to deal with that, to bring comfort to that situation, to come and to bring healing to the brokenness of the world, both in God's people then and in the Gentiles as well. I think one of the things that we can learn from Simeon and Anna here is what it looks like to wait, to wait in faith. That is not a fun thing, is it? When somebody tells me that I need to wait, it usually does not make me very happy. But it is, of course, the beautiful reality of the comfort that they are looking for and the comfort that is revealed here in Luke 2 that allows us to wait and find comfort even in the difficult places of our lives, in the physical pain, in the relational pain, in the familial pain, in the difficult and confusing times. We know that Jesus has come to proclaim ultimate comfort, so we can actually wait and be okay with that now. That is probably at the heart, really, of what it means to wait in faith is this ability to be able to say, I don't know, and I'm okay. Those are two things that usually don't go together very well in our culture, do they? I don't know, and I'm okay. We cannot know and be okay because Jesus has come to proclaim and to enact real and lasting comfort. All right, let's move on to our second couple, Joseph and Mary. Simeon and Anna showed us what it was like to wait in faith. Joseph and Mary show us what it's like to walk by faith. It includes active engagement. I want to say something that's maybe going to be a surprise to you here is that Joseph and Mary, what is so amazing about what they do is that they're not really doing anything very special. Now, I know you're like, they're hanging out and traveling with the Son of God. How could that not be special? What I mean is that they are doing the regular, everyday stuff that God had called them to do. 
Luke tells us that the whole reason they're there in Jerusalem, that they're there in the temple, is to fulfill the requirements of the law. And there are two big laws that they're there to fulfill. Mary is there to fulfill the law requiring purification after childbirth. In Leviticus 12, you read about this, that there's a 40-day period after you have a child. You come and you actually present yourself to the priest at the temple and you offer a sacrifice. It's, if you're wealthy, a lamb and some birds, or if you're not wealthy, just a bunch of birds because they're cheaper. And you offer that sacrifice as a purification process. Then there's a second piece, too, that they're fulfilling. They've not only had a child, Mary's had a child, but her first child. And dealing with the firstborn was actually really different, specific. There were particular laws about what it meant to have a first child. And so if you had a child first, you brought that child to be dedicated to the Lord. There's discussion in Exodus chapter 13, directly following the Passover and and then the Exodus from Egypt, that talks about the dedication of the firstborn, that if you had animals, the firstborn of those animals would be sacrificed, and the firstborn of your children, instead of being sacrificed, would be redeemed. The implication is you would sacrifice an animal in place of the child so that the child would not be sacrificed himself. And so Joseph and Mary are actually coming to fulfill those two laws, to come and offer the purification sacrifice and to come and to offer the sacrifice for dedication of the firstborn as well. And I think this is so important that we focus on this, that they are just doing the regular stuff because think about who they are and and the, the, the options they could have and the reasons maybe not for doing the regular stuff. I mean, Mary was visited by an angel. She just gave birth to God's son. They probably ran into some of those shepherds on the way who said they were visited by an angel as well. They were visited by magi from a foreign country. All kinds of crazy stuff is happening, right? So they could say, hey, listen, we've got kind of the better stuff going on. We've received direct revelation. We don't have to play the regular game that everybody else is playing. We're kind of special. Or... They had lots of uh, practical reasons for not hanging out in Jerusalem either. Herod was in Jerusalem, and Herod did not like Jesus. So they could have said, we're too afraid actually to show up at the temple. But they did neither of these things. They actually came and presented themselves by doing the regular, normal stuff. And that's important and instructive for us because God actually works through the regular stuff. You know that God works in our hearts, in our lives, through the normal everyday activities that He's called us to. Going to work, feeding children, changing diapers, doing taxes, the normal, regular, everyday things that don't even feel like they're all that holy, as well as, of course, the things maybe that do, sitting down and opening up God's Word communing with Him in prayer, meeting with others in a small group, coming to worship. God works through those regular, everyday, normal things. In fact, you could say that walking by faith is actually what produces more faith in us. Now, hang with me here for a second, because we're going to go back and look actually at Exodus 13, where that firstborn thing comes from. I love the way that we read it in Exodus 13 because it actually gives us the reason why God calls them to do this. Listen as I uh, 
as I read this, is Exodus 13, starting in verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as He swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all, the, all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among you or your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. I love that because Moses goes into the discussion of why they do what they do. And the reason why is so they might be reminded about who God is and what He's done. You dedicate your firstborn because the firstborn in Egypt were all killed when we left Egypt. The firstborn in Egypt were all killed and the Lord spared us and saved us. And so, therefore, every time you have a firstborn male, you get to remember that wonderful action of God. You get to remember that wonderful character of God that He has spared you. And when in time your son calls, uh, asks you, why do we do this stuff? And that's what children do, right? Why do, we, why do we go to church every Sunday? Why do we talk to God even though we can't see Him? Why do we read the Bible Why do we give a bunch of our money away? Why do we do this stuff? Why do we spend time serving other people even though we don't want to all the time? Why do we do it? Because God has done these things for us. Because God has spared us. You see, it's actually in the taking part of these things, in the walking by faith, that their faith was formed, that they got to remember, remind their heads and their hearts, this is who God is. This is what He has done for us. This is who we belong to, and God has rescued us. When we simply put one foot in front of the other, following what God has called us to, He works the same way to form and shape us, to remind us of His goodness and His mercy. You might say, to comfort us, to console us so that we might know who He is. Well, those are our four people that are giving us a great example of what it means to wait in faith and to walk by faith. But there's, of course, something even greater going on here. The best thing that's happening in this whole passage, right, is actually not their work, but it's God's work. (laughs) And while we are waiting and while we are walking, God is actually working. This is so beautiful, you know, to see, maybe you noticed this and had a question about it, is... Um, Luke tells us that, that they came to the temple to fulfill two particular laws. And he tells us that they brought two pigeons and turtle doves there for the sacrifice. That's the only sacrifice we're told about. That would have been the sacrifice required for poorer people as they came to offer for consecration for Mary after she had a child. But we're not actually told that they bring an animal to sacrifice for the dedication of the firstborn son. Again, 
The firstborn animal would have been killed. The firstborn son would have been redeemed. You redeem something by offering a sacrifice for it. So why isn't there another animal here in the story? Why isn't there a lamb that's with them to offer as a sacrifice to redeem Jesus back as the firstborn, to buy back their son? Well, maybe Luke is trying to tell us something. Maybe Luke is trying to tell us that there is a lamb, that Mary and Joseph brought the lamb with them, not because he needed redeeming, but because he would do the redeeming. You know, in the Gospel of John, when when John the Baptist first sees Jesus in his ministry, he says, look, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is that Lamb, isn't He? Jesus is the Lamb who would buy back His people to the Lord. Jesus is the Lamb who would be sacrificed so that they would be saved. Jesus is that lamb in the Passover whose blood would mark the house so that God might pass over and save them. Jesus is the one whose life is taken so our life might be kept. Jesus is the one who lays down his life that we might be bought back for the Lord. He is not only the comforter, but he is the redeemer. We've already sung it in our service this morning. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Holy, holy is He. Friends, if you are seeking comfort in your life right now, and again, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of real stuff that's good for you to seek comfort for from the Lord. But know this, that even as you are seeking comfort for those things, those temporal things, those real and difficult things, that the way that we actually find real comfort is by coming to the Lord seeking Him as our greatest need, that our sin that separates us from God has been taken care of by the Lamb that has been sacrificed on our behalf. And as we understand that, we get to draw near to the Lord who gives us real and lasting and true and deep comfort, even in the midst of our difficulty. Let's pray that the Lord do that in us even now. Father in heaven, we're grateful for um, this, Your Word. And more importantly, Lord, we're, we're grateful for what you have done for your living word who has come to take on flesh, to dwell among us, to live the life that we could not live and to die the death that we deserve. We're grateful for the lamb who gives us comfort, comfort your people. We're grateful for Jesus and his sacrifice on our behalf. And Lord, even as we struggle with the difficult realities of life right now, we pray that we would receive comfort from you, that we would hear the words that you speak to us that say, comfort my people. I have taken care of everything. Your warfare is ended. I have paid the price of your sin. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.